So we're going to look back just a little bit at the early church. So it's just after Pentecost. We're going to put. Um, uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter two, very f- well-known verses, chapter two, verses forty-two to forty-seven, um, and hopefully the verses will come upon the screen. So we're going to look at it at in a moment. And so it's just after Pentecost. Uh, the Apostle Peter has preached. About 3,000 people have become Christians. And what started to happen, kind of without a script or a blueprint, the early believers just seemed to naturally start to relate to each other in a natural way. So I'm going to read the verses. Um, Hopefully they'll come up on the screen. If not, just listen in. Uh, attentively. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Where are we? So they devoted themselves, the early believers, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give everyone that they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So Peter, if you just turn me down slightly, if that's all right, that that, would be wonderful. So many Bible colleges over the years have just focused on these verses because something wonderful started to happen naturally amongst those 3,000 people or so who were the early Christians. And if you read it, you pick up, and if we could just leave the verses on the screen, Brummy, that would be fantastic. You'll pick up the extent that they wanted to continue to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I go through it uh, again, hopefully it will come up on the screen. And if you pick up this, this encounter that, that they've had with Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, and they want this to continue... So it says they, they have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching about whom? Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted to devote themselves to fellowship, being one in Christ. It says they wanted to break bread together because they wanted to remember what Jesus had done for them. And they devoted themselves to prayer in the name of Jesus. He says, everyone was filled with awe and the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles in the name of Jesus. He says, all the believers were together and had everything in common, the Lord Jesus Christ. They sold their property and possessions to give everyone who had need because they were following Jesus' example and compassion for the poor. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts because of the name of Jesus. They broke bread in their homes. They had communion a lot. And together they, they, they met with glad and sincere hearts. It says that they praising God and enjoying all the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were putting their trust in 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So this encounter with Jesus was something that they really wanted to continue. That is why they met together, because they wanted those encounters with Jesus to continue. As somebody once says uh, in the book, Total Church, it says this, Church is not a meeting that you attend or a place that you enter. It is an identity that is ours in Christ. So being part of the church is part of our identity in Christ. And uh, they knew who they belonged to. And they wanted this encounter with Jesus to continue on a daily basis. Now, they had their challenges. We know that uh, as the apostles wrote the letters to the different churches, they had their challenges. But they wanted this encounter with Jesus to continue and those encounters to continue. And I do encourage you to buy Timothy Keller's book, the one that we just gave away uh, to some. It's just great how... Sometimes we can be so limited in what we think an encounter with Jesus might mean, but there's always new ones, aren't there? There's always fresh ones. Who knows this week? There'll be a sense that you think, that could only have been Jesus that I encountered in that situation. But the one thing you can't ignore when you read these verses, um, and that is that part of being the part of the church, part of encountering Jesus is encountering each other. You cannot remove that from the New Testament and these, these passages of Scripture, particularly Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. Rick Warren uh, from Saddleback Church in the United States, he says that um, the phrase one another in Greek appears more than 50 times in the New Testament. More than 50 times it talks about one another. It doesn't talk so much about our own personal relationship with Jesus, which he does, often so much in the context of one another. And they just knew that they, the importance of cultivating relationships with each other. And uh, Rick, Warren, Rick Warren wrote a really good book uh, where he, he just rephrased time and time again. Um, 40, he's called 40 Days of Community. Not that you only have 40 Days of Community, but 40 Days where you look at what it meant for the believers to be together in community and the whole phrase, the phrase that he used time and time again is that it's, it's better together. It's better together. There's not much that we can do when it comes to following Christ where we're not actually better together. And these early believers obviously recognized this. They understood that a decision to follow Christ was a decision to make the church a hub of their world. It wasn't just an add-on. It became a central part of their lives. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, one of my favorite verses, um, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says this in verse 16, from him, Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as every part does its work. I just love that phrase, you know, every supporting ligament. There's just so many different strands that holds us together as the body of Christ. I love it when I hear that, you know, I don't, I don't like to hear that people are unwell, but sometimes when I hear that people are unwell, and then I find out who they've had connections with or who's visited them, who's blessed them, or even sent a text or popped around or given a phone call. And I think, I didn't even know that you knew those people. And I just love that interconnection, that interaction. Um, a friend of mine uh, 
I'm not really into Lent. You know, Lent, you do 40 days of something or deny yourself for 40 days of something. And uh, so in my previous church, we decided that for Lent, we're going to say, God, what can I do for 40 days that's going to bless people? And uh, our, our Connect Group leader, she decided for 40 days she was going to contact somebody in the church and bless them. And it was just so many different things and so many different ways in which she did it. And it was just a great intention. I'm going to bless people over these next 40 days. And this, you know, this picture of the church supporting each other, connecting with each other in so many different ways. You know, in the church life, you know, you're not going to be blessed by just having a relationship with me. Let me be honest. Uh, I I hope it's not an anticlimax already, but... um, But in church life, we need so many different connections. We need so many different relationships. It's so important. Now, it's interesting that all these people in the early church, these 3,000 plus that became Christians, initially we know, biblically, they met in kind of homes because they were the only buildings they really had. Some of the homes are quite small. You could only get 20 people into the, uh, the lounge Sometimes some of them had these big upstairs and you get 120 people. We know in the upper room, we know there's times in the Bible where it says over 120 of them met uh, in, in bigger groups as well. And something extraordinary was happening. Something extraordinary happening. So what happened is, is when the Christians began to meet together, that the way that they lived in community with one another, in spite of their differences, had a profound effect. Do you know, it's good to be in a church where everybody's not the same as you. It's good, isn't it? It's good that there's a variety of the body of Christ. And when these were believers were together, at the start of the early church, the rest of Jerusalem couldn't believe what they were seeing. They'd never seen people from so many different backgrounds and status uh, in life or, or jobs or roles or age groups, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. As the barriers were broken down, the people started to realize that this Christianity thing works. Something changes because you see how people are relating to each other in a way you do not see in the rest of society. There's just something unique going on here. They couldn't believe it. And Joel Comiskey, in his book, Biblical Foundations of Church, says this. Family households back then did not consist of the nuclear family as in our most recent understanding. They were multi-generational, up to four generations. They included the social arrangements of several families uh, related by blood. There was, there was um, married couples, different generations, servants, workers, all kinds of different people. And it's reckoned that rather than separating believers from their own culture, God transformed people living in the household structure of their day. So as if God knew what he was doing. To bring the gospel in that culture was a wonderful thing because every household was, was a mixture of people. Different statuses, a different background. And let me say this, we might read this and think, oh, it was heaven on earth for them in the early church. But you know what? It was a crash course in discipleship. It's a crash course in discipleship. 
And that's often how God will disciple us, isn't he? But they really had to be discipled quickly. I mean, we're a household of 20, 30 people. We're, we're all different. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus in this setting? And it's where God had placed them. And it wasn't a case, Lord, I'm a Christian, get me out of here. But it was something that was going to transform them. Something was going to transform them. So there was, what happened was that hierarchy didn't exist. Responsibilities did, but hierarchy didn't exist. Slaves and masters were to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. There was no favoritism. So even in James, he says, doesn't it? Don't put special seats out for the wealthy people or the popular people or the powerful people. You're all the same. Now, this broke down incredible barriers. The giving was given with no strings attached. So as before, there wasn't such a thing as charitable giving. You would give people money, but they would owe you something. If you needed something, then they, they owed you. They were indebted to you. So that's the verses later on in Acts when it says that the, um, the believers were selling property and putting the money at the apostles' feet. They were saying, I'm giving, no strings attached. I don't want anything in return. That was totally unique within that setting. Men and women were honoring each other old and young, and people were looking on and thinking, this is miraculous. This is miraculous. As someone says this, from the very beginning, each individual experienced the built-in support of his or her decision for Christ uh, in the rest of the newly converted household. Each new Christian was immediately integrated in a community of faith that provided significant assistance for further growth as a believer. And as has been said for Joel Kamitsky, and I think this is a really important point, the challenge to the early church was to redeem a network of existing relationships. That was the challenge for the early church. We have got these relationships. How do we honor God in these relationships? But Joel Comiskey goes on to say something I think is very important for us in the Western world. He says, the challenge for the early church was to redeem a network of existing relationships. Our challenge is generally to create community where it doesn't exist. Because today, we don't have the same kind of culture and setup. And it's not as if we would hark back to ancient times necessarily. But one of the things God does want us to do is create community even if the rest of the world doesn't do it in the same way. The world still needs to see how Christians love each other. It still needs to be a statement to the world in which we live. It's still part of our greatest testimony to love each other, even though we don't always, from the same backgrounds, and don't always uh, agree. Where Jesus, so we are the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. And Latini says this in, in his book, uh, The Church and the Crisis of Community. He says, many of our relationships are mediated rather than direct. Distant persons and events via electronic and satellite communications. We often know, or at least know about, 
persons on the television more than our next door neighbor. We know personalities and uh, these people in social, you know, we know them or feel that we know them more than the people who live next to us. It says, where there's been a dramatic increase in watching sports, movies, television, Netflix, and listening to music, we become consumers rather than producers of culture. And God is calling the church to create culture, to do something that sticks out and makes uh, a difference. Now, in ancient times, and I'm not saying we go back to there, things were done for the creative, collective good, not always for the individual. So we always think, why was it that they used to have weddings that lasted weeks? Cost so much money, so many people, they ate so much and they drank so much. And the reason was, is because when two people got married, they would think this is exciting for them. But the reason that they were excited for someone to get married, the whole community could celebrate because this is good. This is good for society. This is good for children, isn't it? This is good for, you know, for grandparents. This, this makes a difference to the whole of society that this was a community celebration, not just a celebration for the two people who were getting married. Because it was for the whole community, not just for the uh, individuals. Now, I don't know about for you, it, it's hard, isn't it, sometimes to build community? Uh, we, where we used to live, Wendy and I, we used to have to park on the road. Imagine that. We had to park on the road outside our house. Sometimes we couldn't even park outside our house, could we? I know. In a sense, it was quite good because you had to walk down the road to your car. You had to carry your shopping across. Now, it used to annoy some neighbours, not that we carried our shopping, but some used to get really annoyed. But at least we connected with people. And I'm not criticising people who have got to drive. We've got to drive now. But that engagement seems to be less and less, doesn't it? I suppose that's the point. And sometimes we just have to be intentional. Rick Warren says this in his view. Community doesn't happen automatically. You can attend church services your whole life and still feel lonely and disconnected. The Bible says you must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. Community doesn't just happen, it is intentional. And that's why, the, you know, I mentioned last week, there's so many verses in the Bible. It's talking about something, and then it says, oh, by the way, practice hospitality. Be hospitable. Get together with each other. It's saying, at times, we have to be intentional in order to do this. Now, just so that this doesn't scare you too much, even though these households, they all live together, I'm not suggesting we live in community. I am not suggesting it. I tried that once when I went to Bible college for two years, and I didn't like it. They didn't like me. <laughs> well, they kind of did. But it just wasn't me. I found it really, I found it really difficult to, to live with a hundred other students. You know, as they say, you can always tell a Bible college student 
but you can't tell them much because they think they know everything. And Bible college students don't often get into arguments. But anyway, but it was good for me because it's a crash course. It was a crash course in discipleship. But I'm not suggesting that we all live together. You'll probably be pleased about that. But as you read these verses, it's interesting the challenge. And again, I'm not saying that we go back to it, but it says that they met daily. They met daily. They interacted daily. These believers interacted daily. And somebody once says this, it's important that believers see church not as an extra thing to juggle, but a hub which enables believers to live the whole of their lives out of relationship. We will only grow out of relationship. So we pick up this the early church, that in every aspect of what they did, they wanted to encounter Jesus. They wanted to continue to encounter Jesus. They realized that this was only really going to happen as they encountered each other. It was a crash course in discipleship. They had to redeem the relationships of the day that reflected something of their faith. And thirdly, they encountered the world. They didn't stay where they were. And uh, as I mentioned, that um, a guy called Ed Silvozo, when he talks about Pentecost and the early church, I think he's really good. He says that the church was born not in the upper room, but when it went outside. The church was born when it went outside. Something is born when it goes outside. And that's when the church was truly born, when, when the believers started to encounter the world. That is when the church was truly born. They weren't hiding. And even though this community of believers was wonderful, they didn't hide behind it. They could have stayed there thinking, this is wonderful. We're encountering each other in every day. We're encountering Jesus every day. But it was a springboard for encountering the world and making a significant difference. So the end of the verses that we were looking at in verse 47, it says this, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Okay, so here we are. They are loving being in the presence of Jesus. They're loving of being in the presence of each other. And then it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this was an, a springboard in order to encounter the world in a meaningful way. They reckon that by the end of the apostolic period, by the time the apostles had died out, that over a half a million people had already become Christians. Now, when you think of the population of the world back then, that is a significant number of people. That is radical. Half a million people had already become Christians. They were not hiding away. Now, Dallas Willard, I don't know if you've ever read a book by Dallas Willard. He is so good when it comes to talking about discipleship. But he has this quite challenging statement, I think, about discipleship. He says, the church is for discipleship, and discipleship is for the world. The church is for discipleship, and discipleship is for the world. Your discipleship should make a difference in the world in which you live. And... In 1 Peter, who was one of the apostles, and he says, doesn't he, he says, live good lives, such good lives among the pagans or the non-believers that they may accuse you, not accuse you of doing wrong, but they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So be out there 
showing you a difference. Engage with the world. Now, I've told you before, I had the privilege of going to Sri Lanka back in 2005, which was just a year, 12 months after the most horrendous tsunami the world has ever had. And uh, I can't remember, it was 2004, 2011, but anyway, um, you can work it out. There was two, anyway, I can't remember which one it was, but anyway, after one of them, and it was the worst tsunami the world had ever had. The Pacific Rim and uh, all those island nations were affected. Sri Lanka was significantly affected. And uh, when I, I remember going and um, was going because to minister to persecuted Christians, I mean, how I could minister to persecuted Christians, I want to assure they were amazing when you hear the level of persecution they were suffering, but still full on for following Jesus, being a community serving the gospel was amazing. But I remember being on the beach where the tsunami came and they, they tried to describe how high it was and the kind of devastation it was and the amount of churches that were kind of washed out. But the thing that impressed me the year after, 12 months after, there was still need in that whole area. And it's not a Christian country by any means. There's only a few churches in Sri Lanka. But the whole seafront area still had uh, Christian mission agencies there to serve people. And I'm not criticizing other religions, but they really stood out as being the people that wanted to be there to serve in a practical and spiritual way. And uh, I don't know if you can be proud to be a Christian, but I really felt proud to be a Christian on that day when I saw that you know, people from all over the world had immediately gone, and they were still there. You know, sometimes as believers we get accused, don't we, of going, li- and then but they were there uh, after a year. And I just thought it was really wonderful. So in Encounter Church, the name has been here, I don't know, three or four years, four or five years, and it's going on. Encounter Jesus raising delight, disciples and releasing missionaries. We're releasing, we're encouraging each other on to good works. Tim Chester in his book, Total Church, coming to an end very soon, he says this, the effectiveness of a church largely depends on its ability to mobilize its people in doing God's work in the world. That's the success of any church, its ability to mobilize God's people to do God's work in the world in which we live. Now, Peter uh, Apostle Peter, in one of his letters, in the first letter, right at the start, and we are coming to a close, right at the start, in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to God's elect, chosen people, and he says, strangers in the world scattered throughout. So with God's chosen people, we're strangers in the world because the world's a little bit different, but we are scattered throughout. And he starts to name all these different places that were on the map in that area that believers, all the towns and cities where Christians uh, had been scattered. And, you know, because when we read those verses in, that I read at the start from Acts chapter 2 about the community of believers together, then that was wonderful and, and wherever Christians are, that is the picture of what it can be. But it is clear 
that God didn't want it just to stay there. He didn't want to, be, he didn't want to build just this super church in Jerusalem. He wanted to send people out. He wanted to scatter people. Now, the persecution that took place scattered them. And it was as if God was all right with that because it scattered believers. You look out for each other. It's tough, he was saying, but your faith is worth more than gold, isn't it? More than all this. And it was as if he's happy that Christians were scattered. They support themselves in scattered, but he was keen that we were out there. That the center had said that no longer would be in Jerusalem, but they created community among whom Christ promises to be present was spread out around the world. So what they experienced in Jerusalem, God wanted his people to experience all over the place and to be missionary. And he allowed this persecution. A friend of mine who leads a church not far from here uh, said something I thought was quite challenging. He says, where we are in our church, we're not looking to be the best church in the city but we're looking to be the best church for the city. What is the best church that we can be that blesses our city rather than to think we've got a better church than we had before? In Graham Cray's uh, view, a Methodist theologian says this, the faith of Christian believers in the UK today is somewhat at a crossroads where churches may have to choose between being refugees from the effects of social change and being agents of God's transformation. We don't back off in community. We use it as a springboard to make a difference. You see, they were the gathered church because they were the scattered church. They gathered because they were scattered. Because they wanted to make a difference. That's why they gathered every day. It's not just because the food was good. I don't believe. It's because they were, had a missional focus and emphasis to their lives. They were the gathered church because they were the scattered church. They were on mission every day. And I love a quote by uh, William Booth, who started the uh, Salvation Army. William Booth. My grandma's surname was Booth. There we go. I wonder if there's any relation. There we go. I don't know. But he says this, and I love this quote. He says, don't wait for a move of God, become a move of God. We have everything we need for life and godliness through the Holy Spirit. So just to close and, and wind down, it wasn't simply for these early Christians, um, I've become a Christian, now I go to church. Uh, as he was says, that these believers in Jerusalem, they, they went to church because they thought, I must belong, I must grow, I must serve. That's why they engage in church. Thinking, I'm, I'm, I must fully participate as a member of a Christian community right where I live. I must engage in a journey of faith in, in order to act and be like Jesus. I must actively use my gifts and my resources to serve others. And as somebody once says this, of all the ways we can express our citizenship in the kingdom of God is by becoming an active member in a local church by being an active member. So let me finish with this quote by a pastor in America, and he says this, 
Bill Hybers says, there's nothing like the local church when it is working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. Isn't it good to be part of a church? Isn't it good to be part of the body of Christ? God has great purpose in that. And, uh, you know, it's good for us to encounter Jesus together. It's good for us to build community together, whatever that means, and support each other. It's good, isn't it, to encounter the world in which we live and encourage each other to make that difference. So it'd be good for us to, to pray. And uh, before we sing our final song this morning, uh, you listen really well, or you looked as if you have. Not many of you seem to have drifted off, even though it's warm. Or some of you, your masks have got higher and higher, so I don't know if that's going to... But let's stand together. It'd be good to stand uh, as we pray this morning, as we draw our service towards a, a close.